Chapter One of the Statement of Stella Maberly by F. Anstey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One. I have no recollection of my mother, although she did not die until I was nearly four years old. She and my father separated shortly after I was born and remained apart till her death. She was extremely beautiful, as I know from a portrait that exists of her, but cursed, I believe, with so violent a temper that it soon became impossible to live with her. When or how she died I don't know, for my father was always reserved on the subject, even when I was old enough to ask questions about her. But I can just remember the news coming that she was dead, and my nurse pulling down the nursery blinds, and telling me that I had lost my poor mamma and should have to wear black frocks. I cried bitterly, not because I understood my loss in the least, but because I hated dark rooms and being dressed in black. Within a year my father married again, and was much happier in his second marriage than I fear he could ever have been in his first. My stepmother was not unkind. I think she was prepared to treat me with as much affection as a child of her own, if I had responded at all to her advances. But she did not understand me. I was a difficult child to deal with, possessed as I was at times by twin demons of jealousy and sullenness, which made me resist all her endearments. Possibly I was encouraged in this antagonism by my own nurse, who was devoted to me, and resented, as such servants are apt to do, the fact that my importance was diminished by my father having taken a new wife, and by the second family that came in time. Between my half-brothers and sisters and myself, their mother never permitted herself to make distinctions, or if she did, it was in my favour, for she treated my outbreaks of defiance with more leniency than she would probably have shown to them, had they ever been capable of such rebellious rages as I flew into, on little or no provocation, so violent that they left me, when their force was spent, weak and exhausted for hours afterwards. Once I recall my father saying, half to himself, and with a suppressed groan, when as a last resource I had been brought before him for reproof, God grant she may not grow up like her mother, which puzzled me, for my mother seemed to me from her picture very lovely. I know now that he was thinking of the want of self-control which had wrecked her happiness and his. As I grew older these outbursts became less violent, or rather took the form of sullen and prolonged silences, during which I rejected all overtures, and even went without food for hours and hours, to the distress and bewilderment of the younger children, who were too sweet-natured to comprehend an anger which lasted so long after its occasion. And yet in the very worst of these black moods of mine, my heart was secretly aching to own myself in the wrong, and be forgiven, and accept the love I knew was waiting for me but I could not. I seemed to be in the grip of some paralysing force which would not relax by any effort of my own will, which made me hard and cruel in spite of myself. With a temperament like this it might have been expected that I should grow up a sickly, puny little creature, as unloved as I made myself unlovable, but it was not so. I had a physique too strong to be affected by my fits of passion and brooding, I was healthy and vigorous, fond of exercise and open air, with mental abilities that, when I chose to exert them, were rather above than below the average. 
and when my demons were not aroused, I was a natural, bright, impulsively demonstrative child who could both feel and attract affection. My half-brothers and sisters adored me and were my admiring little slaves as long as I chose to tyrannise over them. The servants would do more for me than for any of the other children. The governesses I had, though I made their lives so unendurable that not one of them could stand the strain for more than a few months, even they broke down when they had to leave, and confessed that they felt the parting as bitterly as if I had been the best of pupils. I dare say they went away thinking me harder and more heartless than ever, as I remained passive and dry-eyed throughout the leave-taking. They did not know, I took care that no one should know, that when my governess had driven away for ever, I would steal up into a box-room at the top of the house, and set myself to recall every cruel and insulting speech of mine to her, and every instance of affection and forbearance she had shown me, until my heart swelled with contrition, and I found that I too could weep, when weeping was of no use. And yet, in spite of all my good resolutions, I would be just as perverse and willful and unmanageable to the next governess that undertook to instruct me as to her predecessor. This state of things could not go on. I had wearied out any affection my stepmother ever felt for me, and she was afraid of the example my insubordination might set to her own children, or so she persuaded my father, and it was decided that I must be sent away to school. The school that was chosen for me was a fashionable and expensive establishment at one of the best-known seaside towns. It was excellently conducted. The principal was an able and cultivated woman who took a real interest in the mental and moral training of every pupil. She was a firm disciplinarian, and for the first time I found myself under an authority which I could not defy with impunity. I took some pains to please her, and in time, though I often vexed and disappointed her, she came to feel a certain fondness for me. My schoolfellows all belonged to the well-born and well-to-do class, and received me readily enough into their friendship. They were mostly pleasant, simple-minded girls, and there were few of them I actually disliked, though fewer still with whom I was really intimate. Still, I was very far from unpopular. In fact, I soon found myself the unwilling object of a sort of cult. I had the kind of irregular beauty, the cleverness and audacity which girls admire in another, and I had too the crowning charm of uncertainty and caprice. Up to a certain age, girls are frequently great heroine worshippers, and whether they transfer their idolatry later to one of the opposite sex or not, it is always rather increased than checked by being trampled upon. They adored me none the less for being disdainful and imperious. I'm afraid I took a morbid pleasure in wounding or quarrelling with the friends I loved best for the mere emotional luxury of feeling miserable and alone and misunderstood, and I knew that they would always be only too delighted to be taken back into my favour. Perhaps all this may sound like conceit or arrogance, but I shall let it stand. I am far enough from feeling even a retrospective vanity, and such attractions as I possess, or may have once possessed, have brought me small satisfaction, as will be seen before I reach the conclusion of my story. 
I had one rival in the school, who, curiously enough, perhaps, was the only girl there for whom I felt anything like deep affection, and whom, characteristically, I treated with most unkindness. Her name was Evelyn Heseltine. She was an orphan, and would, it was vaguely understood, be immensely wealthy when she came of age. She was utterly unlike me in every respect, fair, with a delicate spiritual beauty which corresponded to her gentle nature, incapable of an ill-natured speech or an ungenerous thought. It was a favourite device of my enemies, for I need scarcely say that I had enemies, to attempt to mortify me by declaring her to be far the loveliest and cleverest girl in the school, but in this amiable design they failed, for even I could not be jealous of Evelyn, perhaps because I felt that my superiority was never seriously questioned. I took the lead in all our amusements, in all our innocent scrapes or festivities, in our riding-school parties on the downs, it was I who was always given the most spirited mounts. In the classrooms Evelyn had slightly the advantage, but she was naturally the more industrious, and even at work I could outshine her whenever I chose to take the trouble. She was not strong enough to excel in sports or games, timid and sensitive, but with a disposition so sweet that it was next to impossible to provoke her into a quarrel, or even a retort, which often exasperated me into making cruel experiments upon her powers of forbearance. She had too much character, nevertheless, to be charged with insipidity, though even her strongest supporters confessed that she wanted one thing to be absolutely perfect, a spice of the devil. And even when I was most cruel, I loved her. I felt instinctively that hers was a pure and noble influence, and I had the grace to be proud of her attachment to me, though with my old self-tormenting impulse I trifled with it until I was in danger of losing it altogether. But Evelyn always understood, and bore with and pitied me up to the very end. I do not know how other women may regard their school days, but I look back upon mine as the happiest part of a life which, it is true, has not been either long or happy, and I was sorry rather than glad when they came to an end, and I returned home, as I thought, for good. For a while after I had come out, and was entitled to take my part in such social events as were provided by the rather dull Hampshire neighbourhood in which we lived, I found existence fairly enjoyable. People made much of me, and seemed glad to secure me for dinners and dances and garden parties. My father was proud of my success, and indulged me in every wish. I had my train of admirers, more than one of whom did me the honour of proposing for my hand, but none of them touched my heart. They were the ordinary, well-groomed, sport-loving young Englishmen, not by any means intellectual, and who, under the influence of sentiment, seemed more stupid than they really were. I found them only a degree less wearisome than I had the silliest of my schoolgirl worshippers, and treated them with much the same merciless ridicule, so that I soon earned a reputation in the county for heartlessness. I do not think I was more heartless than any other girl who is critical and fastidious, and who has never met the man who answers at all to her secret ideal but there seemed to me something at once absurd and irritating in the spectacle of a passion I had never cared to inspire and could not return, and this prevented me from feeling or showing any sign of pity. Gradually, 
almost imperceptibly at first, I became aware that my popularity was declining. I found chilly greetings and hostile looks at several houses where I had once been eagerly welcomed. I was made to feel, by innumerable indications, slight but unmistakable, that I had given offence and was out of favour. This distressed me very little. I had soon tired of the neighbours around us, and was glad of the excuse for indulging my growing distaste for society. So by degrees I gave up going out, lived almost entirely to myself, and took all my rides and walks alone, and in directions where I was least likely to meet acquaintances. This passion for solitude in a young woman of my age and position no doubt seemed unnatural, and formed a fruitful subject for local gossip, but to that I was perfectly indifferent. However, it served to make my home life almost unendurable, for my stepmother, as I had begun to see of late, was secretly jealous of the preference my father showed for me, and the change in my habits gave her a pretext for coming between us, which she was not likely to neglect. I was forbidden to ride or walk without an escort, as though I had been a child, and my half-brothers and sisters were instructed to accompany me and act as spies, which I need not say destroyed any vestige of affection I felt towards them. Now that he could no longer take any pride in my social successes, my father was easily influenced against me. He expressed strong disapproval of my solitary pursuits, and attempted to force me to go into society as I used to do, for he insisted that the slights and rebuffs which made the effort so impossible to me were exaggerated, if not purely fanciful, as if my powers of perception were not likely to be keener than his in matters which concerned me so closely. I yielded to his wishes to some extent only to encounter further mortifications which cut me to the quick, though pride forbade me to betray it. I grew more and more unhappy and restless, and should have been utterly miserable if I had not found some distraction in writing. I had always had an ambition to be an author, and I wrote one or two short stories with a facility and fluency that gave me the hope of having found my vocation in life. The hope proved delusive. My manuscripts returned to me again and again. Some editors admitted that they showed some fancy and imagination, but were too crude and inexperienced to be worthy of acceptance. I flung them into the fire at last in a fit of temper, and sullenly recognised that, though I might be at least as well educated and original as some of the women writers who have sprung into popularity, literary distinction was not for me. I might persevere, of course, but the glow and the confidence had departed. It didn't seem worth while to court any further failures. And then something happened which turned my thoughts into a different channel altogether. One day my stepmother sent for me to her boudoir and told me that my father had just received news of the failure of a bank in Australia in which he was a large shareholder. What his liabilities were exactly he did not know as yet, but the greatest economy would be necessary if we were even to go on living in our present home. The horses and carriages must be sold, and we must all learn to do without the luxuries we had been accustomed to. She ended by suggesting that I should rouse myself from what she was pleased to call my selfish isolation, 
and make some return for the expensive education I had been given, by helping to teach my youngest sister and saving the cost of a governess. All this was said with an insidious show of affection which did not deceive me in the least. I knew perfectly well that she hoped to provoke me into some protest against such humiliation as the position of unpaid drudge in my own father's household. I saw, too, that even if I accepted the task, she would take care that I did not succeed in it. She meant to drive me out of my home and out of my father's heart as well, if she could. So I answered that I quite understood that I was an encumbrance to them all, and that I ought in future to support myself. But as to doing so by the means she suggested, she must be aware that the relations between her children and myself put that quite out of the question, as she herself had completely destroyed any influence I might once have had over them. And with that I left her, and wrote at once to my old schoolmistress, recalling myself to her, explaining that I found myself compelled by family circumstances to go out into the world and earn my bread, and asking her if she knew anyone to whom she could recommend me as a governess. I had an answer within two days. The letter began by an assurance that the writer remembered me perfectly, and was sorry to hear of the change in my prospects. From what she recollected of my temperament a few years ago, she doubted whether I was fitted for so trying a life as a governess's, but it so happened that a pleasanter and easier position might possibly be obtained if I cared to apply for it. The day before my letter arrived, she had had a visit from a former pupil of hers and old schoolfellow of mine, Evelyn Heseltine, who had just returned to England after having been abroad for her health during the past few years. She was now recovered and intended to occupy a house in Surrey that belonged to her, and had mentioned her desire to find a companion of about her own age who would come and live with her there. Evelyn had asked most affectionately after me, and the writer felt sure she would be overjoyed at securing the companionship of her old friend and schoolfellow, if possible. I'd seen nothing of Evelyn since our school days, though we had corresponded for a time. After she went abroad our letters had gradually ceased, and I had almost forgotten her existence till the letter reminded me of it. Now all the old times came back with a rush. I remembered Evelyn's goodness and sweetness, and felt a great longing to see her again. She used to care for me, perhaps cared for me still and I felt so alone and unloved at home. It seemed almost too good to be true that she and I might really be together again, that I should leave the jangle and worry of home life, not for slavery among strangers, but a quiet and peaceful existence with the dearest friend I had ever had, the one friend I had left in the whole world now. I wrote to Evelyn that night, as the principal had given me her address in Surrey, and shortly after received an enthusiastic reply. Nothing could be more fortunate. I was the very person she would have most wished for. I was to come as soon as possible, and she would do everything she could to make me happy. So I was able to forestall my stepmother's intentions, and leave home of my own free will not without some opposition from my father, it is true, 
though he gave way when he saw that I was determined to carry my point. And here I will stop for the present, having arrived at the stage where my story may really be said to begin. End of chapter 1